priorities. So I'm reading from uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 28, through to uh, chapter 8, verse 17. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority, and not as their teachers of the law. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, Truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. All right. When Ada first asked me about this question, I, my immediate response was actually to say, no, I probably won't. Then I thought about it and I thought, well, if I didn't have Jesus in my corner, where would I be today? So here I am standing here saying, how has Jesus brought clarity to my life? I think back to us leaving Zimbabwe in actual fact. Um, surprisingly enough, we weren't actually that anxious, even though Ed didn't have a job and Mr. Mugabe had our money. We knew that the Lord had our back. So here we are and sure enough, Ed got work very, very quickly, and we found a home to rent, which was magnificent because it was close to a school for our girls, close to the shops I could walk there, and also we could get to church and a bus route as well. So that was absolutely fantastic. So we knew that the Lord had his hand upon us, which was just magnificent. When it came to buying our home, again, there was just that, that peace that we had. Um, we found the, the house advertised in the local newspaper, the messenger as it was in those days, going back a long way, and it was way out of our price range. There was just no chance that this was going to be our home. 
Then it popped up in the newspaper again the following week, and the Lord's prompt was, just go and look at it. That's all you've got to do is just go and look at it. So we did. We negotiated with the estate agent, and here we are, 35 years later, still living in our same beautiful home, which the Lord gave to us. Then I pushed myself along 35 years later, and I laugh about being here at Paraka, because in actual fact, I sat with my bottom very firmly in my seat at Morbury saying, no, Lord, I'm not going to Paraka. <laughs> so whereupon the Lord said, well, if you're not going to Paraka, you're actually going to take your seat with you. So here you are, pick up your seat, walk with me, and here I am at Paraka, however long ago that is, 18 months later. So the Lord has been with me all the time, and I know as I... Yeah, just think about it. The Lord is always, always in my corner. I just have to turn, look to Him, and ask Him for guidance as to what we should be doing in the future. So that's me. Good day, everyone. My name is Scott. I'm the pastor here at Trinity Church Prakar. Really good to be with you this morning. Uh, and wasn't wasn't good to hear from Judy just there. She told us how Jesus has brought some clarity to her life. It's great to hear those personal stories. We're going to do that a little bit more. Uh, I'm going to hear a few more of those stories during during this series. But sometimes, look, let's be honest. Following Jesus cannot feel like can, can feel like it's not not really clear, but more confusion than clarity. There's times in your life where you can follow Jesus and you keep asking the question, Lord, why is this happening to me? What am I supposed to do about this? Where, where are you taking me in life? I'm sure if you asked Judy that question, she would tell you that it didn't seem clear all along the path all the time. There would be bits of this confusion in her story too. I was talking to a friend on the phone uh, a couple of weeks ago and this is happening to him at the moment. He's going through a tough time in life uh, things haven't gone the way he'd hoped for in life. And he looks around at his friends and he just says, I feel like I'm getting left behind by everyone. And this is, this is someone who is a believer in Jesus and yet he's confused about life and what life is supposed to be, what, what all of this means for him. And so we're about to start this series. Over the next nine weeks, we're going to go through six chapters in Matthew. Matthew tells us the uh, life story of Jesus. It's kind of like a biography. And I've called this series Confusion to Clarity. Because that's what we see during these six chapters. There's a whole bunch of questions raised about Jesus. Questions like, who really is he? And, and what's he stand for? What does it truly mean to follow him? But at each point... Despite the confusion that's around him, Jesus brings clarity. And my prayer is that he wouldn't have just brought clarity to people back then, but he'd bring clarity to us today too. Clarity on, on, on who he is and what it means to follow Jesus in today's world. Last year we were in part of Matthew. Ada told us this before. And we got through seven chapters. We got to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is probably Jesus' most famous a uh, bit of, of uh, his most famous speech, and it's got heaps of sayings that we still know today. Things like "love your enemies," um, "don't judge," "do unto others as they would as you would have them do unto you." It left a big, it left, it's left a big impact on society today, but but it also left a big impact on the people who first heard it too. So, look, look at how chapter seven ends. It ends with these words: "When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching." Because he taught as one who had authority 
and not as their teachers of the law. Notice there what the people were saying about Jesus, what they see about him. He teaches with authority. He's not like the other Jewish teachers of the time. He's different. He speaks with a sense of of power, that he knows what he's talking about. He's got an authority behind him. Of course, anyone can speak that way, can't they? The question remains, does Jesus actually have authority? Is he all show and no go, all, all, all talk and no walk? Does Jesus actually have authority? We just had Wayne read out the start of chapter 8 for us, but really today we're going to look at all of chapter 8 and 9. Because throughout chapters 8 and 9, Jesus answers this question emphatically. In the space of these two chapters, it's like Jesus is going on a tour. All around, he travels all over the place, all around this area called Galilee. He's on a big tour. He's a tour of miracles. There's 11 short recounts of Jesus doing miraculous things, one after the other, all smashed together really quickly. We just read the first four of them, but it goes on right through chapter 8 and 9, and it all makes this clear and, 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 and this clear, super clear point for us. Jesus is demonstrating that he really does have authority. He's not just someone who speaks and teaches as one with authority. He really has authority. So throughout these two chapters, look at what Jesus comes up against. Uh, against leprosy. Twice uh, he heals people with paralysis. Once there's a woman with a fever, and you think, you know, well, fever's not too bad, is it? You can get through that. But back in the days before the kind of medical treatments we had, this could be a life-threatening illness. There's there's one point where he was approached with a whole variety of demons and sicknesses. He he um, uh, comes up against a storm. There's more demons twice. Uh, There's death. There's long-term bleeding. There's blindness. And at each point here, when Jesus comes up against this, he shows he actually has authority. Illnesses of all sorts, no matter what, covering just about every part of the body. Jesus has authority over them, over things natural and supernatural, over the weather, even over death itself. There's nothing that Jesus does not have authority over. Do you remember a band called Wolf Mother? No? There's a couple of nods. Um, these guys were all the rage for a few years. Um, they started touring about the time I finished high school. And once I left home in a space of about 18 months, I went and saw this band three times. They were epic. They kept touring, even though it took a big chunk of my money that I didn't really have to spend at that time on them. I still kept going because oh, they were just awesome. This band, they were... Anyway. What are they touring for? What's the reason for their tour? Well, it's partly to make money, isn't it? Of course. But really, they're there to show us how good they are as a band, how well they can play in time together, how good they are at shredding guitar solos and stuff like that. Excellent stuff. But people tour all sorts of times for all sorts of different reasons, right? Uh, sporting teams tour to show their superiority over their rivals. Politicians are about to tour around soon to tell us how better their policies are than the opposition and how normal they are compared to everyone else. It's the same with Jesus, right? He goes on a tour here, but he's not talking about policy. He's not talking about uh, how much better he is than the other team. He's not talking about shredding guitar solos. He goes on tour 
to show us one thing. His miracle tour is there to show us he really does have authority. He's the one with authority. But here's the thing. The people back then just did not know how to respond to Jesus. Which is really just the same today, isn't it? That's what we see all the time today. But back then, people saw, they saw what Jesus did. They were there right in front of him. But they were confused about how to respond. And so there are heaps of different responses you see. They range from uh, really positive to kind of neutral and all the way to people being completely negative about him. So some people recognize that Jesus is, is different, special even. And, and they think, well, I probably ought to follow this person. But they end, back, end up being held back by other desires. Other people see something similar about Jesus. Like, he's unique. There's something different about this guy. And, but rather than follow him, they just kind of talk about him amongst themselves and start to theorize. Other people see what Jesus is doing. And they don't want to bar him. They ask him to leave, just to, to get out of their area. Jesus is accused of blasphemy. Some people follow him. Some people question him. Some people are amazed by what he does. Some are in awe and praise God because of him. Others say he gets his authority from Satan. His power comes from the demonic. You see, there is all sorts of responses to Jesus. But probably the reaction that really epitomizes this is from his disciples. Uh, They're in a boat with Jesus and this storm gets whipped up. A wild storm that's basically going to make their ship uh, sink. And they, uh, but Jesus, in, in that moment, stands up. He tells the winds and the waves to stop, and they do. And then his disciples turn to each other, and look at what they ask each other. What kind of man is this? Even the winds and waves obey him. There's a recognition there that something is unique about Jesus, but there's confusion over it. What do we do with this guy? What do we make of him? We don't know. That's often what it's like when there's a kind of new sensation in the world, right? When someone starts to dominate the headlines. Like take Elon Musk, for example. Uh, he's probably not a new sensation, but he certainly is a sensation today. He was the time person of the year last year. He's launched rockets into space. He started his own uh, brand of electric cars. He is the world's richest private citizen. And there are some people who love him. They say things like, He's, he's helping us care for the environment. He's taking technology to new heights. He, he's effectively doing what the governments of the world ought to be doing. They love him. But others of us, they aren't so keen on him. We'll say things like, he's out of control on Twitter. And he's filthy rich. But if he really wanted to help, wouldn't he stop spending money on the billionaire's space race and start spending money on feeding the starving people of the world, things that actually would help? Elon Musk, he divides people. Opinions of him are spread, right, from from love him to hate him and everywhere in between. What are we to make of a guy like this? That's that's what happens when someone jumps on the scene. That's That's what's happening with Jesus too. There's confusion. And this guy is not your average guy. He's just not another punter walking down the street. But we don't know what to do with him. How should we respond? That's the question going around in chapters 8 and 9. And actually, that's the same kind of question we have 
today about Jesus too. It goes around our world too. There's confusion about Jesus and what we make of him. You know, Is he really the saviour of the world or is he just a good fraudster? Was he simply a good teacher or could he be like more than that, like a prophet from God? Can we really know anything about Jesus at all today or is he more just myth and legend? There's a lot of confusion in our world about Jesus and who he is and that makes it hard to know how to respond to him. Should I follow him? Can I be sure? Do I need to wait for more information or... Or can I just take the bits of Jesus' teaching in his life that I really like and just forget about the rest? Perhaps you're confused about Jesus too. I mean, you could be in church your whole life and still be confused about what you should do with Jesus. Confused about how you should respond to him. What do you do with someone like this? He's not your average bloke. Thankfully, Jesus doesn't leave us in the dark. Throughout the passage, we see again and again the response that Jesus clearly wants from us. See, Jesus brings clarity to this confusion. Jesus brings clarity by saying, the right response to me is faith. You see, um, he praises the centurion we read about before for his faith. Later on, he asks the disciples why they don't have faith. He tells a bleeding woman that her faith has healed her. And similarly, the blind men right at the end of chapter 9 are healed because of their faith in Jesus. Faith is the response that Jesus commends. But particularly, we see this in one key event. Let me read it out. This is from chapter 9, starting at verse 1. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Some men brought him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. At this time, sorry, at this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, Get up, take your mat, and go home. And the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to man. Even in this recount we see some different responses to jesus right there are some who are in awe and praise god because of jesus and there are others who think that jesus is being blasphemous by saying what he does but again neither of them really captures the the response that jesus wants did you see verse 2 what jesus really wants he says he praises the paralyzed man and his friends because of their faith because that's what he's looking for Back then, Jesus wanted people to turn to him in faith, and that's still the same today. Jesus wants people to turn to him in faith. But there's a tricky thing when we start talking about faith today. And that is, there is a lot of confusion about what faith means. Anyone here used to watch the show Lost? A few, yeah. Uh, 
great show. So um, I thought it was a fun show until like the kind of last season or two. But anyway, there's um, survivors. It follows these survivors who, who are in a plane. The plane crash lands on an island. They end up in an island in the middle of nowhere, which sounds like it's just a survivor tale, but it's not because there's strange, weird, mysterious things happening on this island. Some smoke and bears and... Anyway, lots of fun. Amongst this group of survivors, though, there's two characters who kind of come to the fore, who become leaders, uh, and they're often at odds with each other because of the way they think about life, and each of them describes themselves in a different way. So you've got Jack on one side. He's your man of science, he says. He's a doctor. Right? He wants to see the evidence to know what to do. On the other side to him, there's Locke. He is the man of faith. He wants to make decisions, not because he's got necessarily any good reason to, but it's more about his gut feel. It's his instinct that they should go this way and not that way, even if there's no real reasoning behind it. And often today, that's the way that we can think about faith. It's, 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 the, it's the John Locke kind of faith. It's not about having logical reasons or clear evidence. It's, it's more of a gut instinct. It's this internal, personal thing that you're persuaded by, even if there's nothing you can point to and say, this is the reason why I believe. We think faith is, is this John Locke kind of faith. You're either born with it and you have it or you don't and there's nothing you can do about it. Often that's the way we speak about faith today, but that is not the way the Bible talks about faith. Do you know faith is often a, wor- a word used in the sporting world quite a bit too? Like if a team's going badly, what have they got to do? They've got to keep the faith. Like in this article. and This is from... Canberra's A-League women's soccer team. They didn't have a good start to the year. Apparently they lost four or five games on the trot. And there's a veteran player, and the veteran player amongst the team was urging the team they've got to keep the faith. Now, what does she mean by that? It's about thinking positively, isn't it? Not letting these past results get you down, but be optimistic about the future. Think positive. But again, when the Bible talks about faith, that's not what it means. In the Bible, faith is trust. Having faith in something is just saying that you trust trust it. For example, all of us here today are people of faith. You have put faith in what you are doing right now. You have put faith in your chair that you're sitting on. You may not have come in and examined it and looked for cracks and anything like that. But, but it's probably at least you've seen something like it before. You know it's a chair. You know it holds you up. You probably may have even sat in one of these chairs before. You know it works. That is, you trust it. You're people of faith. And in fact, everyone is a person of faith. We trust all sorts of things in our lives, right? Like when we're driving along in our cars, we trust that our car is not going to fall apart as we're going along the, the speedway at 100. Our houses, we, we live in them. We trust them not to collapse on us in the middle of the night, which means we can get a really good sleep. Have you ever stepped into an elevator in a high-rise building? There's an exercise of trust there that the cable isn't going to snap and you're going to plummet down the shaft in the middle of a building. We're people of trust, and we don't just trust things. We trust others too, right? Our parents, our siblings, might be a friend or a spouse. We trust people, not just because we've got a gut instinct that we think this might be right, It's because they've proven themselves to be trustworthy in our lives. That's what faith is about. And that's the response that Jesus is asking for us today. We're supposed to trust him. That's what Jesus says, trust me. Part of the question for us is we need to look at the life of Jesus and think, is this this the kind of person I can trust? But then it raises another question. What are we supposed to trust Jesus for? 
what are we supposed to put our trust in Jesus for? I remember being in a Bible study group. This is when I was back living in New South Wales. Uh, a Bible study group with a particular guy. On this day, I was catching up with this one guy from my Bible study group. We are having a coffee together. And I asked him, he was a young guy, kind of 19 or 20. I was asking him, so what do you see for yourself in the future? And I remember his response. He responded really clearly. He just wanted to talk about this perfect girl that he was waiting to marry and he was going to meet her and he'd cherish her, he'd marry her, he'd love her. I think this guy was a bit of a romantic at heart. Um, and so I asked him, I remember asking him very clearly, what if that doesn't happen for you? What if you know, God has singleness in mind for you in your life? I remember saying that question to him because I remember clearly his reaction. He said, that's not going to be me. I know that God's got this girl for me. My friend had a very strong faith in Jesus. He trusted Jesus to do something for him. That is, he trusted Jesus to give him his dream existence. The thing that he really wanted for, he trusted that Jesus would give that to him. Is that what faith in Jesus is? Is that what we trust Jesus for? I mean, if you look at these couple of chapters in chapters 8 and 9, you might get that idea because look at all the healings that Jesus does. Look at all the good that Jesus does. It might seem like Jesus is there to give us what we want and to take away those things that we don't want in life. You know, if things don't go the way I'd planned and I I get sick or I've got a long-term health issue or or I don't happen to get married when I wanted to or I can't have kids or I've lost my job or life just doesn't turn out the way I wanted, well, then I've just got to say a little prayer, have a bit of faith and Jesus is going to make it better. Is that the life of faith? That's not though, is it? Not even here in Matthew chapter 8 and 9. Because remember again what happened with the paralyzed man. Right, Jesus' first reaction when he sees the faith of this man and his friends, what does Jesus say? He doesn't heal him. Look at what Jesus says. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son. I'm going to give you the perfect life. It's going to be top shelf. Right, kick back and enjoy. No, he doesn't say that at all, does he? He says, take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. Forgiveness is what Jesus is about. That is what we put our faith in Jesus for. Because he has the authority to forgive our sins. Because he has the authority to restore a connection between us and God that we've lost. I mean, Jesus does go on to heal this man. That's true. He does demonstrate, but he does it not not because that's what the guy ultimately needed. He does it to demonstrate that he does actually have authority. You see, Jesus does this, this visible thing, the thing we can see. He does the healing, but he does it to show us that he can do the invisible thing, the thing we cannot see. He does it to show that he really has the authority to forgive. Look, friends, if you put your faith in Jesus, trusting that he will just give you whatever you want, he's going to kind of fulfill your dreams for life. I want to say, you probably need to just stop now. It's only going to lead you to disappointment. I mean, sure, when things don't go right, we can pray to God. We can pray that Jesus would give us healing when our bodies fail because he's shown he does have the authority for that, yes. 
When we're not sure what's going on in life, we can pray to Jesus that he would give us guidance. Yes. But it's, he's not there to give us, Jesus is not here to give us our dream life now. He just has not promised to do that. Certainly following Jesus is good for you. It's the best thing you can do. But it's not easy. It's not necessarily the life you'd always dreamed of. Living a life of faith in Jesus does not protect you against life's problems. It's actually better than that. Hear this. The life of faith in Jesus is one where you are sure and certain that you are forgiven. You have confidence that your slate with God has been wiped clean. You have a fresh start. You have a new beginning. You have peace with your maker. And all these miracles that Jesus has done just point to this fact that this is what he can give you. He does have the authority to forgive. So do you trust that Jesus can do that for you? The life of faith is one that says, I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven because Jesus has the authority to make it so. I'm no longer estranged. I'm no longer apart from the God who made me. Now I know him. Now I call him father. Now I walk through life with him. Now I know that whenever I'm worried or concerned, I can speak. And he hears me. Now I know I am not alone in this life. And even though things here do not always go the way I would have hoped for, I know that one day I will be with my God. And that is better by far. This is the life of faith that Jesus invites us to. It's not one where all our dreams are fulfilled here and now. It's one of faith in Jesus for forgiveness. Is this the faith, friends, that you have? Let me pray for us. Our good God, we thank you for Jesus here. We thank you that he is the one who has authority. We thank you that he is the one who brings forgiveness. Help us, Lord God, to respond to Jesus as those who trust him, as those who trust him to bring us forgiveness and the life with you that comes from that. Please be with us along the way as we get through this life of faith. Help us continue to remain as those who trust Jesus. We ask in his name. Amen.